Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am so thrilled to have Heidi Zach with me today. She's the co-founder and CEO of Third Love. Third Love is a woman's lifestyle brand that makes bras, underwear, loungewear, and more, all designed by and for women. It's currently a top online intimate brand amongst millennials and the most disruptive brand in the category. Since its inception, they've also donated over $50 million worth of products to women in need. All right. Hi, Heidi. Hi. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? I'm good. Very, very excited to have you on the show today. I think about all the, the people, all the incredible women who I've had on She Dynasty, and you are one of the women who I think is like truly like revolutionized um, an industry. Like you've taken something that was kind of old and stodgy and really brought it into today's time. And I personally thank you for it just because, wow, we'll, we'll talk about that. But um, I just remember <laughs> for so many years being like, why does this not feel right? And, uh, you know, you definitely did something very special. So congratulations to you for everything that you have accomplished. Thank you. All right. So just quickly, you know, always love to start when you were a kid. What was the dream? What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I was obsessed with Katie Couric, I think, and at elementary school into middle school. I remember writing this book report all about her and the Today Show. And uh, what what's super funny about it, it, obviously, that's not what I ended up doing at all. And um, I don't know that I would have been good at it now reflecting back. Um, but she's an angel investor in Third Love. So it definitely came full circle. Wow. And I remember when I was meeting with her to pitch her on our last round to join as an angel investor, I was like, I have this book report I wrote about you. It was, I mean, to me, I, I was, when I first met her, I had a hard time getting the words out because I've been obsessed with her since I was a young kid. So anyway, funny awesome. story. Yeah. I love that. That came full circle and any influence from your parents, like anything they did that influenced you or that were they supportive, you know, in terms of like being like a career woman or tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I mean, I was an only child, which I think does create a certain dynamic in the household. Now that I have my own kids and, and see all the kind of interesting dynamics and, you know, my mom didn't work when she had me, she was a teacher but my dad did. He ended up being an entrepreneur later in life, actually, when I was in really in high school, early days of high school. He he basically did a management buyout of a company. And so he became an entrepreneur, right? And definitely, you know, I think the focus of work ethic and just always doing your best. And, you know, you have to put in time. I mean, nothing comes easy. Professional athletes. Um, Fortune 500 CEOs. I mean, they don't get to where they are because you know they woke up at 10 o'clock. So I, I think really that the work ethic and and yeah, I think he always, in particular, empowered me like that I could do anything, be anything. Um, and who knows what it would have been like if I had had three brothers, which I don't, you know. So I don't know how that kind of would have played out. But for sure, I think the expectation was that you know 
I was going to go out and do something. I don't know that they thought this was what it was going to be, but anyway. Right. I mean, it's always so interesting to see kind of where people end up from where their um, original aspirations are. And, you know, I love to, I've interviewed, you know, almost a hundred different women now, which is incredible. And I love to find patterns that I see with successful women. And so one of the things, um, you know, that you've said, and not everybody who I interview is an entrepreneur, either they're C-suite executives or entrepreneurs, but usually the entrepreneurs have some, uh, have a parent that's exposed them to that. They've gotten a taste of it, you know? So I think, I think the seed definitely like soaks in. I know it did for me. My dad, you know, was, even though he was in a totally different business than me, you know, he's in, in real estate and I'm in advertising. It just, I liked that self-starter, that like do it yourself, build it from nothing, you know, kind of mentality. I think there's, there's something about that that just feels really cool when you can see it in action. Yeah. And I think the risk taking, right. To do something where you're striking out on your own, whatever that may look like, there's real risk involved with that. Not just, you know, for the, the person doing it, but the entire family, like everyone around them is impacted by the decisions we make of the careers that we choose and the risks that we take. And it does, there is just risk-taking when you start your own thing. Naturally, you have to be okay with it. And most people do fail. So, you know, knowing all of those things, it takes a certain kind of personality to say, yeah, like, I'm going to try this. And it's definitely not for everyone. I mean, I've I've interviewed so many C-suite executives that work for giant companies that are like, there's no world where I would start my own company. As successful as they are, they just don't have kind of the demeanor or the stomach for it. It's just, I think it's just like you're cut from a different cloth. Do you agree with that? For sure. I mean, I think there's some that there are some exceptions to that that you see, but absolutely. And I think that's also why when you're hiring at a startup, you have to be really cognizant of this idea of bringing in senior execs from bigger companies, because oftentimes they're not used to the hustle or the lack of resources or all the things that it's like makes a startup what it is every single day, because it's just radically different. Even for me, it was an adjustment because I had been at bigger companies before I started Third Love. And then it was like, oh, I'm the one setting up payroll. Oh, I'm the one, you know, emptying the garbage. Oh, I'm the, I mean, you know, all the things, right? So. <laughs> well, I, I love that you've had kind of both sides of that. How would you describe the stress of working for a big company versus your own company? Like, how do you, how, how would you describe the difference between the two? It doesn't really compare. Because I think when it's your own thing, you have a lot more vested in it and your your you know your name is tied to it in a different way and in particular you know when at a bigger company there's just more there's more insurance about if something goes wrong you know right. there's somebody else to help mitigate it and when you make the wrong decision when it's your own thing it's your money your time you know all of those things and it's you know, having to raise money all the time is really hard. And so, you know, whether you're funding your own growth or raising money, you're still, you're on the hook, right? It's not like at some of the companies I work for that were public, it wasn't like people were looking at me to make sure everyone at the company was, got paid every two weeks. Yeah. It's all sure. those little things. Right. 
Awesome. So I understand that you went to Duke, which is now one of the most sought after colleges. I only know that because I have a daughter who was like so obsessed with getting in there. And unfortunately, she didn't, but she ended up going to a great school. But, you know, just learned so much about that school. And I also understand that you took a class at Duke that really, really um, inspired you in entrepreneurialism. Can you tell us about that class and what you learned from it and why it was such a spark for you? Yeah. So my, I think I was the first year that they started the program or one of the first years. And I think it was my junior year. There was a new brand new program called markets and management. I think it's changed names today, but it actually still exists. And so we were one of the first, maybe the first to participate. And it was really an entrepreneur entrepreneurship class, even though it was called markets and management. And we got together with teams and built out a business plan. And this is going to date myself, but you know, this was in, I think it was 98, maybe 99. So the late nineties, I mean, entrepreneurship wasn't really as much of a mainstream thing back then. And it was just a really interesting class to even get together, come up with an idea, come up with a pitch, you know, get up and pitch that. And then, you know, full circle today at Third Love, I think for the past four or five years, I've hosted groups from Duke who come visit Third Love from this entrepreneurship program. And they come out to the Valley and visit different startups that have been founded by Duke graduates. And so it's very cool. And I'm always like blown away. You know, we were talking about this pre-roll, but I am always blown away by the maturity, the knowledge of these undergrad students. Some of them are sophomores, sometimes juniors, and they're so well-spoken. They have such thoughtful questions for me. Sometimes as I, I think of them as almost business school students, I mean, I'm just blown away by what they're doing in college. And what's also awesome to see is how many women come and how many of them are doing computer science degrees. And just, it's radically different than when I was there. So that that's really, really awesome. Yeah. And you just made a really interesting point uh, earlier. You said, you know, entrepreneurialism has obviously evolved and changed and is boomed since, you know, since when you were in college, you and I were in college, just such a difference between, you know, what was available to you back then. It just wasn't something that, I mean, obviously there was always entrepreneurs, but now it's, it's obviously just a much bigger, more accepted, more exciting thing for people than it was back then. Yeah. I, I think back to even business school, but definitely undergrad. I mean, I didn't even under, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of what was really going. I think if you weren't from the West coast, I think if you you were probably from the West coast and maybe in particular the Bay area, you, you, I'm sure you were more exposed to that, but certainly if you were not, it was not as mainstream. And I, I didn't even have perspective on that. So I, I think I really, you know, lens through who came to campus to recruit. And, you know, those were technically big companies. And of course, that's what I ended up doing. And actually, that was a great career path at the time. And I still think it's a good career path for people because to understand professionalism and out of work and work product and a lot of those things, I mean, these big companies have amazing training programs they've developed over decades and decades that are awesome for new grads. I mean, point blanks, you're, you're going to get a totally different set of experiences as a startup, which is, which is also very valuable, but it's, it depends on what order you want to do things these days. Right. Right. And this, and this, the secret dream of every entrepreneur is to become a big giant company, not 
for everybody, but for so many entrepreneurs yeah. to become. So to get a taste of that, to get a taste of what it could be and then go back and kind of strive for that, I think is really, really interesting. So I also understand that you decided right after college to go into investment banking and another fun She Dynasty fact is this is like one of the top trending things that so many women on this show did right out of college before they started their own companies. So I find that really, really fascinating and interesting. So I want to hear a little bit about that. And if you think that there's some sort of a direct correlation of why you think people who go into investment banking tend to like to start their own companies. So it's fascinating you bring this up. I was at a NASDAQ women's event last year and it was a small group, but there were founders and then there were some public company CEOs, all women. And we went around and talked about our upbringing. It kind of was what you were asking me, like, were there any common elements of um, just things that had happened in our childhood or experiences that had maybe driven us to be where we were? And then- we talked a bit about like, what was that background when we, like our first jobs. And I, I think 90 or 95% of us had done banking at least for two years. It was, I was, I was shocked by that. So I think one thing is that, and I think it does, it is a little bit, I'm going to say generational, that sounds terrible, but I do think that if you chose to go into banking you know, 20 years ago, it was very much male dominated. I mean, it's definitely shifted a bit, but for example, in my class, there was eight women out of like 80 or 90. So wow. you're talking about 10%. And that was pretty standard. So you're, you're self-selecting into that, which I think takes a certain kind of personality. And I think it means that you're okay being kind of the different one and maybe trying to prove people wrong about what they think a banker looks like. And then I think second to that, which we were just kind of talking about, I think you get a really great general business training at a young age that is invaluable as you think about the, the core things. When you think about what makes a successful company, you're kind of learning those at 21 years old, which I do, I do think helps you have more perspective. So those are probably the two things that jump out at me. So you eventually wanted to get out of finance and you went back to school for business. Did you go to MIT? Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Two amazing schools. So what led you in that direction? Was it a little bit of that kind of uh, the combination between the entrepreneurial bug that you got plus a little bit of that uh, banking finance background? So really was an entrepreneurial yet at the time I, again, when I, this is, I've always had these trajectories of I graduate and then there's a, a crazy recession, like immediately thereafter. So that's right. happened twice, right? After, after undergrad and business school. And so it was a really tough time, you know, when I was an analyst in New York city, I mean, there was layoff, tons of layoffs and all kinds of stuff. And so I wasn't laid off, but I was looking for, I really wanted to transfer to a retail company and I wanted to work in a retail company and get an operational kind of job. But the only roles I could find were in finance. And so basically I was debating taking those, but I was like, look, if I get pegged into finance and a retail company, then I'm sort of always going to be in this finance track. And I really wanted more of a general management or an operational track. So that was really what drove me to go to business school was to switch, really switch careers, which is what I ended up doing. So I got a summer internship at Aeropostal and then I went there full time. And so, yeah, that was really just about something that would allow me the flexibility to get into something new. 
Awesome. And you also talked about a story where you got an internship by cold calling. And I love kind of the takeaway from this story, because I think, you know, for for so many, just, you know, the takeaway just needs to be how important it is for you to push through and go after it versus waiting for things to fall in your lap. So tell us that story. Yeah. So this, so in, after, of course, in between your first and second year of business school, you know, everybody gets a summer internship. I don't know anybody who doesn't like, that's the thing you do. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that come to campus that tend to be more standard. That's what a lot of people do. Certainly no retail companies coming to recruit at MIT Sloan for, for a summer internship, but that's in, again, like I said, that was why I had gone to business school. So I'm like, I'm just, I'm not going to take a consulting gig for the summer. Like I am here to like find this gateway internship and it was sort of like, you're on your own. And I remember talking to my parents, it must've been April, you know, when I think we got out end of May and they're like, how do you not, and, and not, I, I was the only person in my whole class who didn't have an internship lined up. So it was definitely a little bit stressful. And I was like, look, like I'm looking for the right thing. I'm not going to settle for something. And I had this list of retail companies and I, you know, I did a lot of research and I had, I was familiar with a lot of them from having done banking. And I just went through and created this list. And then I started emailing and, and then cold calling because, you know, you send emails and people don't reply back just, just like today. And, you know, I would say thinking about your career path is you are selling yourself and you are in sales. So you don't just, your career just doesn't like come because, you know, I mean, maybe someday later on, hopefully if you're successful, people call you and ask you, right? In the early days, I mean, you can't just rely on inbound. I mean, you have to create the opportunities. You have to network, you have to hustle. It doesn't just land there most of the time. Yeah, so I started cold calling and I got through to Aeropostal and I was on the phone with the head of HR. I still remember his name and um, chatting with him. And he's like, actually, our head of business development is looking for, a, you know, a summer intern. You know, could you come to New York and interview? I said, sure, that'd be great. And I hopped on the train and took the Amtrak in and went and met Mark, um, who ended up being my my boss there. And, um, and it was funny because I was interviewing with him and I always remember sitting there and he's like, Somebody, somebody called his office and it ended up being the CEO of Aeropostal. Wow. Uh, it was a public company, right? And he's right, like, right. oh, Julian's coming down. And I'm like, the CEO's coming down? He's like, yeah, he wants to say hi to you and he wants to meet you. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my God. So Julian comes in and he's he's juggling. Like I will, he's juggling balls, like talking to me, like cracking jokes. He's like, he was, that's his personality effect. Right. You know, you knew him, but I was, you know, I, I went home and I was thinking, what did I say the right thing? Anyway, I got the summer internship. It turned into a full-time gig, awesome. but if I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. I mean, it was really through just constant calling that I found something. It wasn't, it didn't just happen. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point. Sale. I don't care what job you have sales. You're selling no matter what you're doing. I don't care what job you have. You have to persuade people, convince people, get people to like you, get people to agree with your ideas. You yeah. know, it's always, it's always such an important part of it. And the second thing I always tell my two daughters is writing skills. Like mm-hmm. those are the two things. Like just please focus on those two things, how important they are. They just take you so, so far in life, right? 100% in the writing is a, a real one. Yeah. How do you get someone's attention and yeah. how do like, you write something impactful, right? And quick. 
Yeah, and it's hard in a in a world where you can't pick up the phone and call people anymore. I mean, every word matters. Yeah. I mean, I'm embarrassed to even admit this, but you know, if I write an email and I'm trying to, you know, get someone's attention, I like scrutinize every word, you know, because there's probably a thousand emails coming like mine. Every word matters. And the second you just write it in a second, don't care and it's not thoughtful, it just it's not gonna matter. It's not gonna matter. How are you gonna break through? Yeah, 100%. Awesome. All right, so we're gonna sh we're gonna move on to your spark, and I love your spark because I think you have the same spark as millions of Americans or millions of people in this country. The big difference is you did something about it, which I love. I wish I would have acted on your spark, but you know that is that you had a terrible shopping experience at Vic Victoria's Secret, and I just gosh for so many years I just remember going into that store. And I couldn't quite place it, but just being like, why does this not feel right? Like, what is it about this place that it didn't fit? It didn't, it was trying to be something. It didn't feel authentic. It just, there were so many issues with it. And I would remember walking in there and every time wanting to find something, trying something on, and it just never worked out. And so I want to hear a little bit about your experience and if it was, you know, similar to mine, but again, I just think you had the same spark as so many people. And I always, I always tell people like, you know, 99% of success comes with, you know, just having an idea and following through. Lots of people have ideas. I bet you so many people are like, I wish there was another brand, but you actually did it. So tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, as you said, I was bra shopping at a Victoria's Secret store, which is what I had really done since I was a teenager. And I was in the mall near the Google office out in California. And I, I literally went to the store. I drove to the store. I needed some bras and I walked in. I'm like, oh gosh, here I am again. It's very similar to you. Like, what am I doing here? This experience does not speak to me. It's not pleasant. And the bras don't really fit me. So, you know, then I came to find out I had been wearing the wrong size my entire, basically right. adult life, which right. many, many women are, which doesn't help the situation. But yeah, I came home that night and I, you know, I came home and I started doing research because I was like, there's got to be another option, you know? And I, in my head, I was like, no woman really wants to go to the store. So it feels like something that we can do online. Yeah. And it feels like there should be a brand that's relevant to the, you know, modern woman, as I, as I called her. And there was nothing. There was nothing. And this was 2012. And nothing. yeah. And so like, that was the, nothing. you know, that the spark was just like, there, there wasn't, there wasn't an option. Right. But it's, I mean, if I think, if you think about it, like at the time, if somebody would have said to me, I'm going to start, you know, a bra company online, you would think, but people have to try it on. And it's like, I mean, were you, were you nervous about that? Was that like something that you were like, not sure about? Because I do think because people had been doing it for so many years, a certain way that that would have been just a huge concern for me. Like, obviously it's working, but tell me, was that a concern? Yeah. I mean, I think when you looked at the trends in e-commerce, it was growing. I mean, it's still growing today. It's right. not growing at the pace people even projected it would, but it's still growing as a percent to total. So that shift from brick and mortar in store to online had been happening and was going to continue to happen. So as you think about creating company in an ideal world, you're creating companies in markets that are growing and growing quickly. So 
knowing that it was really about solving the problem on digital, which is why we created the fitting room. So solving the fit issue, making women feel really confident about buying a bra online that we could help her find her size without that in-store experience was super important. So that was part of the core tenets of what we did um, from the very, very beginning. But definitely investors asked us a lot. That was a huge question we got from investors in 2013. Like, how are you going to like sell this category that's impossible for women to even buy the right size when they're in store. So certainly there was a hurdle to overcome, but it felt like a solvable problem. Clearly. And you did something brilliant. So simple and so brilliant. And I love your company because of it. I buy my bras from you because of it, which is the half sizes. Thank you. I, I'm sure there, like there was no world where any bra ever fit me until then. Like I just, I'm a half size. I'm just, you know, I'm not a this and I'm not a that I'm right in the middle. And it just, when I, when I put on a bra that finally fit, it was just a game changer. I mean, you know, for a lot of, you know, some men listen to she dynasty too, but when you're uncomfortable, it sucks, you know, and when something doesn't fit you well, it's not, it's not good. And so I really like appreciated that just really small, but thoughtful change that you made. I think it's really, it was really a game changer. Yeah. I mean, when we started to design the the product piece, there was sort of the, the digital experience, the fitting room and on the product side, we, you know, my, my, one of my co-founders, co-founders and I, Rael, we were together um, testing product and we had a lot of women into our office, um, tiny, tiny little office to test. And we were seeing a lot of women fall in between traditional sizes and both of us ended up being a half cup as well. So it was very clear to us that this was going to be the new thing. But, you know, when we went to our manufacturers, well, our one manufacturer, I shouldn't say plural, and we're like, we want to do half cups. They were like, no way. Like, it's too expensive. No one's done it. Like, if, if it was meant to happen, all these big guys would have done it already. All the reasons why that it was just like, no, 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 no. And it was something where we really, really felt strongly. We really believed there was an opportunity to, to help women find the right fit. And it, and it does make sense. If you think about it, I, and I've always said, you know, if shoes have half sizes, why shouldn't bras? I mean, in essence, it makes sense. Like, sure, you could wear a shoe that's slightly small or slightly big, just like you could wear a bra where the cup is slightly small or slightly big, or you could have the half size and then it'll fit you perfectly. <laughs> I love that. And I, I just, again, I love what the impact you've met, you know, made. I've, it's really interesting. I have a, a group of like mom friends on my phone and there's like, I think 16 or 17 of us in the group. And one of the moms were like, I need new bras. What companies do you like? Literally like 70% of people said third love. It was amazing. Like I want to, I'm going to take a screenshot and email it to you. Cause it was just so amazing to just see that like constant. I was, I was really curious cause I knew I was going to interview you. And that's what people said. It was just amazing to see that. So again, just love that. You know, going back to the Victoria's Secret thing, I'm sure you know, obviously I'm sure you know about this, but there was that um, artist, uh, Jax, who came out with that song, Victoria's Secret. Oh my gosh, she killed me. I mean, I just thought that was the most brilliant thing. If you haven't heard it, I'm sure most people are listening have, but because all over the radio, but wow, I mean, she, I mean, did she just take that company down with that one song? Like, do you, I don't even know what's the behind the scenes on that. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it definitely was like after sort of 
our whole open letter to Victoria's Secret and all that stuff, because that was 2018. Right. Um, and this was more recent. But I think what was really cool about it is her her entry into that, that much younger demographic. Because mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the slightly older population was following along with the Victoria's Secret and what they were and were not doing. But I think the younger generation may not, it might have not been as clear to them. And so it definitely was like, oh, okay. Like it, it was definitely, it, it. I thought it was, it was, it was pretty amazing, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not quite, I mean, I think she really, it's, I think that song is her experience. For sure. I mean, you must've just been cracking up. When you were no, it was amazing. I'm like, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I actually wonder what impact it had on the company. I mean, gosh, I mean, I heard stories, I read articles that they tried to get her as an ambassador and she declined. I mean, just brilliant, right? So brilliant. So tell us about your open letter to Victoria's Secret, which happened before what she did. Yeah. So in 2018, there was, they were still running their annual fashion show and the chief marketing officer at the time was doing an interview with the editor at Vogue and this article came out and I was getting all these texts and emails this one morning in November. And I woke up, I'm like, what is going on? And everyone's like, have you seen, you know, it's all my East coast friends, you know, texting me. And, uh, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So the title of the article was where nobody's third, where nobody's third love were women's first love. And it was, you know, that's what the chief marketing officer of Victoria's secret said, obviously taking, you know, a jab at us and, it was published as a Q and A. You know, I went on the Vogue podcast with this editor six months later, and we were talking about it. And she was saying, "Yeah, I was going to write this article about the fashion show, but this interview just went where I wasn't expecting it, and I just published it as a Q and A. I mean, it wasn't even a. She didn't even write an article. She was just like, just I'll just transcribe this and put it out there in the world. He said all kinds of stuff about." nobody wants to see plus size models. We tried them in 2000 and nobody cared. And, you know, this is, you know, we're giving a gift to, you know, women to be able to watch this, you know, entertainment special, like, you know, this is, you know, our gift to women and mankind. And, and it was really just, I felt so obnoxious and just so out. It was, it it, it epitomized everything that was wrong with Victoria's Secret, really in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah, she nailed it. But, you know, just the whole like you could just tell everything was kind of thought of, envisioned by a dude. Right. That's her whole message. And that was, I think, the thing I couldn't like the thing when I used to walk in their stores that I couldn't place is it just didn't feel like it was created or the vision was done by or created by a woman. You know, you just felt it. Well, and what's interesting about the origins of Victoria's Secret, which I found out um, on the doing the um Angels and Demons documentary that I was a part of on Hulu. And they had done a lot of interviews with the original, the wife of the original founder of Victoria's Secret, who had come to our third love office to film. So I got to spend time with her. He unfortunately committed suicide, but she kind of gave me, she was, I was listening to her interview and then we were chatting. And what was fascinating is that, you know, originally it was really designed as a store for men. 
So it was meant to be this boudoir that now again, do men love like velvet and stuff like oh, who knows, but it was meant to be a place that men could go to buy lingerie for women. Ah. And then it kind of like flipped. So the aesthetic stayed the same and it was more targeted, but it was always lens through that perspective of like, how do we create a place that men would want, which see now this all makes sense. Right. And you're like, oh, <laughs> now I got it. Right. Totally. Oh my God. You're just connecting so many dots from Yeah. Me. Yes. Totally understood. All right. So why the name third love? Tell us about the name. Creating a third love, a third option for women. So we really looked at the industry and said, there's this idea that you can have a comfortable bra or a beautiful lace bra, but it's not going to be both. And we said, we absolutely can design a beautiful lace bra that you also can wear every day and feel really comfortable in, right? That doesn't have to be scratchy or the idea that you have to be a C cup or a D cup. No, we're going to create a C and a half. So this idea of creating a third option, a third love for women. I love that. And then I understand one of the snags that you hit, um, and I, I just love learning about different industries because so different than mine is that you... Um, you tried to do on-demand manufacturing. I think this was probably early on um, when you started the company. It didn't turn out too well. Um, tell us, tell us why. Yeah. So in addition to all the other new things that we were doing with the fitting room, <laughs> half cups, it's like all the all the things that were outside of the norm, we decided to produce on demand because inventory and skews, there's so many SKUs even oh. at Third Love today because of our size ranges, we have 65 yeah. bra sizes. Right. So like, wouldn't it be great if we could produce bras one by one? Um, it would, you know, make the supply chain tighter. We can create it and then it can ship out to the customer. Seemingly a good, a good idea until you get going. And really what ended up happening, and we were, I was down in Mexico, one of our first factories was in Mexico with one of my co-founders and we were watching the bras come off the line is like, they were Frankenstein bras. So they would sometimes mess up the wire, right? A B and a half and a C wire are very, very similar. And these bras just weren't coming off with a quality that we had set out to do. And there's a reason why, you know, the assembly line exists and Henry Ford is a really smart guy. And <laughs> you're not doing it that way anymore. No, but it's interesting, even like our original app our, our we had an app in the early days or made on demand. I think all of these things, that we set out to do 10 years ago are becoming a bit more mainstream in the tech and the production space. So we're not fully there yet, but we were a little bit ahead of our time as it happens with a lot of companies where there's just not quite either the resource or the resources or the technology. So I would say never say never. I think there's still opportunity there, but no, not right now. We do not produce like that. Right. Okay. And then another snag, this one seems really big, that you had your entire tech team quit over a decision you made to move to Shopify. That's that's a big deal. So how how the heck did you get through that? Yeah. So we had built another thing we had done because again, like I said, we were kind of pre-Shopify when we first launched. We had built our own front end and back end. So all of our tech platform, which is so much time and money, so much time and money and mistakes. And we didn't have the resources to support it. So when we went on the Today Show, like our site crashed, stuff like that was happening. And Shopify was just sort of gaining momentum. So this is, you know, flash forward, this is 2015. And we talked to Shopify and we decided we were going to switch. So we went to our tech team and it wasn't about them not having a role. It was really like, we're going to leverage this new platform, continue to build some stuff on the side because Shopify wasn't as robust then as it is today. Today, there's an app for everything on Shopify, but that wasn't the case in 2015. And so 
we went to our tech team and said, here's why we're going to switch. It's going to be more stable. It's going to allow us to work on other things. And they were like, if we switch, we're all quitting basically. And we're like, okay, well, I guess you're, you know, it was sort of like, I guess this is happening. And we had half of our company, you know, quit overnight. I mean, we went from 15 to seven or eight people. Oh my gosh. And we had one guy who stayed on and then we hired and we switched to the platform, but it's a real, it's a hard thing as a founder because you have to make some big decisions. And, you know, for me, it was a real learning of like, not everyone's going to like the strategic direction. And the question is like, do I, am I listening to these people who are actually an expert in an area? I'm not like tech. I mean, is technology my, you know, the thing I know everything about? No. So it's like a leap of faith about what's going to be best for this business. And, and, you know, how does it feel when people do that? You know, it feels like you're, you're making the wrong decision. I mean, that's really, you know, and it's hard. So I, it was a good learning in the early days. It's, it all worked out everything that was the right decision. And of course, you know, hindsight's 2020, but I think the more often you make big decisions that people disagree with that work, you start to become more confident in that you can make hard decisions. Not everyone's going to like them and that's okay. I think that's again, such a, such a powerful lesson. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, look at entrepreneurs that have, you know, successful companies, they think it's, you know, all roses and it's not, it's hard. I mean, I'm sure you've had, you know, many sleepless nights and nights where you thought it was all going to come crashing down and the stress levels that come with it. And, you know, and even today, even when things are successful, I'm sure there's fire drills all the time that happen. It's just part of being a business owner. Yeah. It is true. It's never, it's never easy. (laughs) Nothing's ever easy because there's always something, right? It's kind of like, it's like life. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about your shift. You said that your shift was born out of the try before you buy program, a program that fueled growth from uh, third love's first million customers. Tell us about that. And how did you feel about such a, a big risky payoff? Yeah. So what happened to us was once we had launched our first couple of styles, we had this one bra, the 24 seven t-shirt bra, which definitely was a standout. It was women loved it, kept it at a super high rate. And so we had that and we knew we had this amazing product, but we hadn't found product market fit because we didn't have that many customers. And so, you know, we took a look at our numbers and we're like, if we don't figure out how to start to market this bra to women and get them to try it, like we're not going to be in business in a year. And right. at this point in time, there was, you know, maybe 10 of us in a conference room and we got together and we're like, why are women not trying it? And I mean, I was like running some of the Facebook ads at this point in time and we were a tiny company. And really what we came to realize is nobody who knew who third love was like, we were just some brand no one's ever heard of. And we were saying, it's going to be so comfortable. And we have these half cups and all this stuff. And it's like, women didn't really believe us. Right. Cause like today you can ask your friend and they're going to be a great referral for the company. Like you just said, I mean, totally different place, you know, back, back then. And we're like, we have to give her some reason why she can't say no to trying. Okay. And so the radical idea was like, what if we just say, well, like, let, give it to her for free. She doesn't have to pay for it up front. Let her take the tags off and wear the thing. Like nobody does that. No one will say like, I believe in this bra. Like, yeah, you can go to the store and try it on, but you have the tags on. And then sometimes you wear it home and you actually don't like it. And the wires rubbing or it doesn't fit. And then you're like stuck with this bra that you can't return. So we're like, let's not do that. Let's just like let her wear it for 30 days and hope that it becomes her new favorite bra. Like we believed in this product so much. We were willing to do this. 
crazy risky. And give me chills, like just to like, I just love, I mean, you knew you had something so great and just to believe in yourself that much. And I just, I I just love it. (laughs) I want to bottle it and like package it and so good. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was just like, let's do this and see what happens. And we had like run the numbers and we're like, well, you know, if the, if the, the keep rate is like over 75%, like all the financials sort of work out and it just really took off because the ads were basically like, try this bra for free. We believe in it so much. Like we want you to wear it. So wear it and try it. And then people would pay for full price if they kept it. And most women kept it. I mean, that's how we got not only our first million customers, but probably our first 2 million. I mean, it was the program that really put us on the map and put third love on the map. And, you know, today, again, there's lots of try before you buy programs, not maybe exactly the same, but you know, Amazon has their own version, et cetera. I mean, none of those existed back then. So it was highly unusual, um, but it worked. Big risk, big reward. I love it. All right. All right. So I also understand um, that you, you've been an angel investor for some other companies. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I I think I did my first investment in 2015 or 2016. I just counted the other day. I think I've done 19. Almost all of them are female founders. Again, that's not, it's actually more than I thought I had done, but it's been over, you know, the course of eight years. So it's not, it's not like I'm like doing a bajillion, you know, per year. I really just came to realize that that was something we were missing at third love and uh, something I really wished I would have had, especially in some of the early rounds in the seed round. And so I was like typical of like what I like to say to anyone at third love or in my personal or professional life, which is like, if you don't like something, then try to change it. Don't complain. Like I, I, it's one of my total pet peeves is like people complaining about things and not offering to like take action because, you know, it's all about doing. So I could sit around and say, oh, there's no female angels. And like, that's true. There weren't really a ton in 2013. There's a way more today, 10 years later than there was back then. And that's because people like me and a lot of other female founders and executives started doing some small angel investing and it, and it matters. Like, the 19 investments matter. And like you take a bunch of people who did that in a lot more than even me. And it does start to change, like change things. It does. So, well, I, lo- I love that you've, you know, taken some of your success and kind of started to believe in others. That, that's such an incredible way to pay it forward. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's the least I could try to do. <laughs> it's amazing. There's something you refer to as a third love effect. Tell us what that is. Yeah. So the, we created the third love effect in the summer of 2020, you know, that was in response to a lot of the disruption that had occurred that really that spring into that summer. And what we were thinking about as a company was what, you know, what was a program we could do that was really authentic to our company. And really important to me was something that could continue to go on for a while. You know, I obviously like donations are great and that kind of thing. That's like you make a donation and, and then what happens? And so to me, it was really important to figure out something that 
that could, could keep going. And so I was actually like showering one night and I'm like, oh, this would be awesome. Like, what if we did this program and we could do some mentorship and help amplify their business, give them a grant. And then I could do some personal like one-on-ones with them and try to help them with whatever, you know, the big things are. And then we'll kind of create this ecosystem where, you know, little by little you grow the program and then you have a certain number of women in it. And then they can be their own little network that they can, use to, you know, ask questions and have a support group to so that was really the idea. Now we've had we just announced our fifth cohort effect winner, Ashley from Mela Vitamins, I think like a month ago. So and all of these women are just crushing it. It's just really awesome to see how well they've done. I mean, they've all a lot of them have gotten into Target and to, you know, all kinds of things and are scaling their businesses. And um and I keep in touch with all of them. So I do different check-ins with them. Yeah. Fantastic. Any big innovations or future plans with Third Love that you can share or maybe some things under the wraps that we can look forward to? Yeah, I mean, we're launching a brand new category in December. Um, so some of our customers may have a guess as to what that is. It's our number one most requested thing. And prior to this category, our number one most requested item was sports bras, which we launched about a year and a half two years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so this is another, uh, you know, highly requested category that's really hard to find a good fit. So yeah. Is it a secret? It is a secret. Okay. Well, we'll definitely look out for it. (laughs) I love it. Awesome. Wait, I think you've answered all of my questions. So the next part is our rapid fire questions. So just first thing that comes to your mind, a sentence or two. So what professionally keeps you up at night? Um, I think hiring the right people. That's always been the biggest challenge at Third Love. And and as we continue to grow, just making sure that we're we're continuing to hire the best talent for the role and with people who really believe in the mission and are super excited about it. The right people are everything. Mm -hmm. You could completely switch careers, totally different, non-related. What would you do? I would likely, I I would like to be a food critic. (laughs) I've always thought that would be like a really neat profession. Now I do feel, I do wonder, do they get sick of it? Like, I I think I need to meet one and talk to them because they probably do. But in my mind, that feels like a really cool job. (laughs) I would always just feel like I'd have to like have like a thesaurus or a dictionary with me because you have to think of like new things to say, new ways. Yeah, that's right. What adjective can I use to describe? Right. Right? I always wonder how they come up with all those new ideas. Awesome. What's your biggest strength? Determination. I mean, I kind of alluded to this. I'm the kind of person if it's like if I set my mind to it, it's like I will do it. You know, I've done an Iron Man, like I've done things that are really, really hard, wow. not because, well, it, I, it's to me, it's like mind over matter is always the kind of yeah, that they answer. Totally. What is your biggest weakness? Oh, man. I think my biggest weakness is getting caught up in things and not being able to like step back, even work or my kids stuff. I feel like I get very much tunnel vision to some extent. And it's like, you got to like pull yourself out and move on. But oftentimes I'm like, why am I here two hours later doing this thing? Because sometimes that's like a waste of time. Sometimes it's like a great characteristic, but oftentimes it's like not good. Okay. And if you could have one skill set that you don't currently have, what would it be? Anything. I'd love to be able to speak a different language. Like I'd love to be fluent in Mandarin in okay. particular. That would be awesome. Fantastic. And lastly, what does success mean to you? 
Success to me really is building something that changes lives. And so, you know, oftentimes people say like, well, what inspires you or that kind of thing. And really it's meeting people who customers who use our products where they're like, oh my gosh, like you're the founder of Third Love. Like I found, uh, finally found my right bra size, you know, at blah, blah, blah age, or I'm a half cup fan, or, you know, I love your your imagery, because I can see myself reflected in it, because that's really what I set out to build. It was to create a change in a old school industry that really didn't reflect women at all. And so that's to me is success is, is making women happier. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, Heidi, I think you have answered all my questions. I'm so, so, so happy that you um, joined me today. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I do want to give a quick shout out to Shelby because she's the one who gave me your email address and uh, we both know her mutual friends. So hopefully she'll take a listen. So hi, Shelby. Thank you for Shelby. Thank you. We appreciate you. (laughs) We appreciate you. Um, And uh, yeah, just uh, congratulations on, um, you know, just being so brave and bold and truly disrupting an industry that needed to be disrupted. Um, You know, I know that I you know, really took notice when your brand came into play. And um, I'm a huge fan and I just wish you so much more success. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being a customer. Yeah. (laughs)